Karen and I had an enjoyable week's holiday. We missed out on being with you last Sunday. I listened online to Jonathan's word. Uh, it was great on uh, the demoni- demoniacs. Uh, and as he'd linked it uh, with some things earlier, we'd looked at on that. I feel that there's many ways the whole of our series is weaving together. This is on faith, but two weeks ago I spoke uh, on the storm, and there are links, uh, the disciples in the storm, faith links. I believe these things are not uh, to be ignored. I think God's speaking to us about a number of very key subjects, and this morning's is faith. Let's just briefly pray as the last parents come back and then get into the Word of God. Lord, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for everything in it, Lord. We we love every aspect of your Word. It's like honey to our lips. But Lord, we must say, when we read your words, Lord Jesus, when we look at you, we feel there is something especially powerful for us. Not that it's more inspired, Lord, but we find it more uh, directly impacting our lives than some other passages. So I pray... Father, you would send your spirit to just minister to us out of the word. And may the word bring your presence, bring your spirit on us. And, and, and Lord, will you engender in us a fresh faith? If we've never had our eyes open to the truth of the gospel. May they be open this morning. For those of us, Lord, who are following you and, and trying to walk by faith and live by faith, Lord, give us fresh vision, fresh faith, fresh energy, fresh spirit. Break in our lives, Lord. Break into our lives this morning, I pray, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Right, we're going to look at Mark 5 and verses 21 to 43. And I want to start by reading it this morning, uh, and then we'll have a bit more of an intro after that as we look at the three main characters uh, and then learn some lessons for us. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing, it says in this translation, but many others have a word that's in my margin and maybe in your Bible, which I prefer, a better translation, I think. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told him, 
Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples that were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and he told them to give her something to eat. Now, it's a fascinating story, and it's very real, very down-to-earth, as all the stories are in Mark. They're all the Gospels, of course, but particularly in Mark. As we've said throughout, there's a sort of punchy, direct style to Mark's Gospel, which is from the fact that it was Peter's eyewitness account written down by Mark for him. They are true life encounters and they are direct lessons for us. And the Holy Spirit's given them to us to, for us to learn from them, be inspired and stirred. And that's what I really pray for this morning. So I'm first of all going to just quickly look at the three main characters, at Jairus and then at the woman and Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about Jairus first of all. He's described as one of the synagogue leaders. Now, this means that he was a fairly important person in that local community. And indeed, it's quite possible that he's given his name, Jairus, because Peter was from that community and he would have known all about this man. He would have been reasonably prominent. If I can give you virtually a dictionary definition of what a synagogue leader was and what he did, because I think these things are interesting. So just listen, a couple of uh, lines here I want to read to you. A synagogue leader was a lay member of the synagogue who was entrusted by the elders of the community with the general oversight of the synagogue and the orthodoxy of its teaching. That's interesting. He had a sort of practical responsibility for the synagogue to make sure that the building was well maintained and secure and to make sure all the scrolls were there for people to read and teach from. But he also had a spiritual legal responsibility to make sure that it was orthodox. So he would have organised the preachers. He would have invited the preachers. And he would have made sure that what was taught was uh, orthodox and in harmony with the Torah. So he's a very important person to the local community. And I think it's worth remembering that. We perhaps describe him as a middle class or upper middle class sort of person, though those categories wouldn't have applied there. So he he is quite important. Remember, by this time, Jesus has already made waves with the religious figures, with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He's already been controversial in what he said and caused some controversy. So for Jairus to come in the way he does to Jesus is quite a big deal. If you looked in verse 22, 23, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and he pleaded earnestly. That was not just like, oh, well, he would anyway. That was a very humbling and, in a sense, radical thing for Jairus to do. He was desperate. He was really desperate for his little girl who was dying of a horrible illness. And out of his desperation, he had a faith that Jesus could be an answer and could bring healing. If only he could get Jesus to come to his house 
and lay his hands on him. And he forgot all his dignity, all what the teachers of the law and Pharisees might think. And he just threw himself at Jesus' feet, came through the cultural barriers, the social barriers, the shame barriers, and just said, Lord, would you come to my house? My little daughter's dying. Come and lay your hands on her that she will be healed. He states clearly, she'll be healed if you come and do that. It's quite a powerful, passionate, humbling, radical faith in its own way. And he throws himself at Jesus' feet. So let's look at the next character, the woman. She hasn't got a name here. I don't know why, but she hasn't. And lots of folk haven't in the Gospels. Uh, And she's a woman who's got a very unpleasant illness. It's probably gynecological bleeding that's gone on for 12 years. And therefore, she is undoubtedly weak physically we might know this anemic or something but more than that there is much worse because in the Torah the law when women had periods they were unclean and if you touched them or they touched you they were unclean as well Uh, an uncleanness uh, uh, religious uncleanness well obviously that was taken into account and various things said but if you are actually in a position where for 12 years you've been in this condition, you have become virtually an outcast. You're not supposed to be touching people or touched by them. You're not supposed to be mingling with them. She's breaking the law to even be mingling in the crowd because she's clearly touching people apart from touching Jesus. We'll get to that in a moment. So she is probably not exactly like a leper, but it's not far short. She's quite outcast. She's probably quite lonely. And sadly, she is now very poor. She may not have been that poor originally, we don't know, but she spent, because she's desperate about it, and not unreasonably, she spent all she had trying to get better, going to various doctors and probably quack cures and goodness knows what, but it had done her no good, and in fact, she grew worse, and of course now, she is very poor as well. Now, this woman is not only breaking Jewish law by mingling with the crowd, she particularly does something which is, again, a big deal and quite... Uh, dangerous almost. She touches Jesus. Now, touching Jesus, legally, she's making Jesus unclean. She is doing something she shouldn't. This rabbi, a normal rabbi, would be highly indignant and compromised and infurious indeed. I don't even know if there would be a punishment for it. For some woman like this to touch him, it totally breaks the law. So it's no wonder that in verse 33, she's trembling with fear when she publicly admits what she has done. But actually, it's amazing. And this, we need to linger on and enjoy for a moment and get something even from this. Because what happens is a reverse of everything that should happen. She touches Jesus and her uncleanness does not impact on Jesus. His cleansing healing comes to her. As she touches him, it says a power went out from him. There was an anointing of healing on Jesus, the Son of God, and a power goes out from him, and she's healed. Now that is in itself an extraordinary prophetic picture of the gospel. Everything changed with Jesus. The law defined her as unclean. The law had no answer to her uncleanness. It just said, you're unclean, and until that's sorted out, you have to stay in a box over there. But Jesus came in a totally different way with the grace of God. And as it were, he absorbed her uncleanness, if I can put it that way, and sent out his healing. And that is what the gospel is all about. 
Yes, we're all lawbreakers. We are all technically unclean. We are all sinners, unrighteous, unclean, whatever word you want. Standing condemned before God. May not be our own fault, all of it. This poor woman's it wasn't. But the situation in a sin-sick world leaves us unclean. But when by faith we touch Jesus, which is what she does, by faith, if I can only get to Jesus, there's an answer. That's what she says to herself. When by faith she touches Jesus, everything changes. It's on its head. She doesn't bring uncleanness to him. She gets healing from him. And cleansing and wholeness and healing. It is wonderful. It is what the new covenant is all about. Do you get it? Get it. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, and it applies to every one of us. We don't make Jesus unclean. He bears our griefs, bears our sorrows, bore them on his body on the cross, and we are cleansed by a touch of faith to Jesus. Made clean. And it is a thorough, thorough cleansing. And we'll see that in just a moment. He, he, he gives her more than just a physical cleaning. But I mustn't jump ahead of myself. Let me finally, of these introductions, talk about Jesus. So I've talked about Jairus, talked about the woman. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. Jesus is wonderful. Just let that settle in. Jesus is a wonderful, wonderful man. I want you to get what Jesus is like this morning. Just get it for a few minutes. Notice, there's a quick list of things to notice. There could be many more. Despite his busyness and the large crowd, Jesus is interruptible. So he allows his agenda to be set by people's needs. First of all, Jairus and then the woman. Both of them interrupt whatever it was Jesus was doing. Both of them get his full attention Both of them change his agenda for that morning. He changes what he does and he gives them attention. And he brings healing and wholeness to both in different ways. This poor woman's faith touch brought physical healing immediately. But Jesus takes time to be more thorough with her. He calls her forward, which looks scary, and she is terrified. It's getting worse, she thinks. She thinks, I'm ill, but I'm now going to be in real trouble with the law. And then he says these beautiful words to her in verse 34. Daughter, and even to use that word, just get that. This is how he addresses her. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I believe Jesus is showing, he's not only interruptible, he's showing a holistic concern for this woman. That's another point, really. He's interruptible, he takes time for them, but he's showing a holistic concern. She doesn't just need physical healing. She needs to be declared legally righteous publicly. She needs, in 12 years, people knew who she was, a small community. She needs to be declared as clean. And he uses this amazing, acceptable, beautiful term, daughter. She's totally accepted to him. No rebuke. No, you shouldn't have touched me. You should have waited. You know, the law thing. No reference to it. He's not come to reinforce the law. He's come to bring grace of God and healing. And so it's daughter, first of all. But then he goes beyond that. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You think, well, why does he say that? Because I believe this dear woman and it's often true, was suffering from a lot more than something physical. I mean, it's rejection for a start, 
12 years of rejection. Goodness knows what her life was. No man would want to touch her because of the uncleanest thing. And goodness knows what else went on. 12 years. She's damaged by it, to be honest. She's suffered in lots of ways. She's had the massive disappointment and of being virtually conned by doctors, of, of, of frequent hope deferred, making the heart sick, frustration after frustration, no hope. And so there's a holistic thing. You're not just physically healed. You are in peace and freedom. Isn't that great? That is what Jesus does. In both of these instances, he shows that he cares about the individual. He cares about every aspect. We'll see it too with Jairus and his daughter. Now, Jairus himself does does care, but I don't know if you notice, because it's only just at the end, that when the little girl's healed, the 12-year-old girl, they're all so excited, which is quite natural and astonished, and Jesus says, make sure she has something to eat. This girl's been ill for a long time. She's been through a death experience, and he he says, give her something to eat. Again, Jesus care for the whole person and individual. So Jesus is interruptible. He lets his agendas be set by people's needs. He cares for the whole person. And he is no respecter of persons. That's the third point. What do I mean? Jesus doesn't just kowtow to the wealthy or to the influential. It's not that he, he's anti them. He's not anti them at all. He is just neutral in a glorious way. He deals with everybody as an individual. Jairus' important status in the community doesn't impress Jesus at all. But Jesus cares about a father who is desperate for his child to be healed and who comes to him in faith. But Jesus doesn't sort of say, oh, I must go to Jairus' house. I've been invited to we'll keep everybody else out of the way. Don't worry about the woman or anything like that. No, no, no. Actually, he, if anything, he gives a preference to the woman because Jairus has to wait, and it's quite a painful wait, while Jesus talks to the woman, reinforces the healing, and brings that holisticness that I've talked about to her life, that she's going to have peace and freedom and, and be totally free from every aspect of her suffering which is great for her, but for Jairus, things are getting worse while that happens and his daughter dies. But it does show that Jesus is no respecter of persons. Jesus has time for each individual. He's not impressed by worldly standards and worldly uh, sort of levels. Now, all of this is a wonderful insight into our Jesus, Let us put up one verse from Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So he hasn't changed, has he? So Jesus is still interested in the individual. He still gives time for a request or a faith touch. He is still interruptible. He's still interested in the whole person, the whole thing of their lives. He is still not impressed by your outside worldly human status, but is concerned about your internal need and faith steps towards him. The external is of no importance to him. And just in case there's this little nagging thing in your head this morning, yeah, that's Jesus, but what about God the Father? Oh, he can be a bit nasty on a bad day. No, 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 no. There is no discord in the Godhead. God is one Three persons, one being. There is no discord in the Godhead. 
Jesus is not like, oh, he's got plenty of time for individuals, poor, poor woman, but God's a bit more scary. That is not how it is. And in fact, we haven't got this verse to put up. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus the Son is the exact representation of God's being. That's powerful. He is the exact representation of God's being. God is one. We are looking at the heart of God. Get that? We're looking at the heart of God when we look at this story. Now, this is to be a great encouragement to our faith, all of us. First of all, we don't have to have tidy prayers, do we? A desperate, humble prayer gets Jesus' attention. A quiet, secret, and equally desperate reaching out of a hand of faith gets his attention and gets a healing. Jesus is not asking to be persuaded that we're this good, we've done so much for the local community, we ought to have his attention. That does not get his attention. But the cry of a desperate parent does. And the reach out of a desperate woman does. And this Jesus, our Jesus, the same Jesus, is interested in you physically, spiritually, emotionally, every aspect of your life. And he still is interested in every aspect of your life. So, in the light of that, let's move to what I, I would say, like the second half of what I want to say. I want to talk about faith from this story. Not every detail from this story. I want to take two aspects. I want to look, first of all, at the importance of faith. And in a minute, we'll look at these two examples of Jairus and this woman. But I want to make some general points about the importance of faith. Because now we've learned about Jesus, what I've just been saying... We've got to say, well, how does this work out? How do you get into this? How do you connect with this Jesus? How do you benefit from all that he is? Now, what I'm about to say in the next uh, 15, 20 minutes, I, I find challenging as well. I just want to say to you, I am not standing six feet above contradiction this morning saying, look, I've got this sussed. I'm a mighty man of faith. I get it all. I hope you poor souls will get up to my standards one day. I am, that is not what I'm doing, Okay. I am challenged, I am saying for a lifetime, uh, an adult lifetime of Christian walk, I have tried to learn and practice issues about faith. But I know what I am saying this morning is very important, very challenging, and there's a subtle balance between it being condemning and challenging. And we'll touch that as we go through. Let's start with the importance of faith. Throughout the Gospels, if you read them carefully... Jesus is never particularly impressed by people's righteousness, cleverness, knowledge. He never makes any particular comment on that. But he does express admiration for people's faith. Just let that sink into your head. The thing that Jesus seems to actually say well done about is faith. Not knowledge, not understanding the law, not uh, your uh, various successes or otherwise, not to be despised, I'm sure, in daily life, not even your righteous acts. When you read the Gospels, what really gets his attention and his praise is faith. And he loves it, Jesus loves it, when he finds it in unexpected places. So, example, some of you might know, be a Roman centurion, the Canaanite woman, sometimes called the Syrophoenician woman, and a little bit here with this woman who has the issue of blood. 
Now that is in harmony with God because Hebrews 11.6 tells us faith pleases God. So nothing, nothing pleases God like faith. That's what really gets him happy. Nothing touches his heart so much as when we exercise faith in him and trust him. Now on the negative side, we need to take this soberly to heart. If faith is missing, nothing else counts much for God. Religious rituals, Christian rituals, Christian traditions, church attendance, orthodox doctrine, emotional displays are of no consequence if faith isn't involved. Let that sink in. Because I think the Christians and the church generally need constant reminding of that. If it's not of faith, it's sin. God does not want us trampling his courts, but without faith. So faith is a huge issue. It's a key issue. Here's another one. These are very important things. I think faith is often the key factor in our behavior. It's a key factor in our correct behavior that we believe the truth and we walk in the light of it and our behavioral uh, problems once, was someone said, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Christians' behavioral problems are belief problems. It's true that we need to believe the truth, we need to hear the truth and put faith in it. But on the other side of the coin, negatively, as someone who's been a pastor and a leader in the church for 40 years maybe, I have observed that people who break down Christians, who break down morally and backslide, it often starts with their faith breaking down. You say, really? Really? So you think, you know, they don't always present that way at first. You think, oh, I had this terrible temptation. I got into this problem, met this woman at work, did this, look at that, do the other, and all sorts of things. Had an opportunity to make money I shouldn't have done, blah, blah. But actually, when you talk, you find the first keys to the problem were a breakdown in faith, in who God is and what they are and what they're... And it is true. So keeping our faith sharp and fresh is vital for our walk with God. Here's a verse from Hebrews 10, verse 38. My righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Shrinking back in unbelief is one of the most serious sins from God's point of view. And really, this is quite a thing to get our heads around. Because we think the most serious, we could list what we think the most serious sins are, I won't even start. But actually, from God's point of view, unbelief is the worst. Say, really? Yes, really. And we don't often see it that way. We actually think unbelief is quite reasonable. We think, actually, we can justify our unbelief. We can explain our unbelief. Well, if you'd had my experience, you'd have a problem with unbelief. Well, I think God is quite hard. And we make all sorts of cases. God says, when you don't believe me, that is the start of everything bad. That is the worst sin. And actually, we need to hear it from God's perspective and just get something into our hearts about faith and where the answers lie, not just where the problems are. God has given a unique place to faith, faith in his promises. Someone said this, this isn't my words, God's grace 
flows along the channels of his promises, not his commands. God's grace flows along the channels of his promises, not his commands. It's about believing God's promises, not so much obeying his commands. That can outwork later, but that's not the key issue. In fact, if we don't obey his commands out of faith, as I've already said, there's not much point in it. It's got to be a fruit of faith. Now, faith doesn't deny reality, but it is not ruled by circumstances. And that we just have to realise. We're never going to be fully satisfied with our senses before we put faith in something. They do not come first. Faith in God's truth comes before feelings and circumstances line up. These two people show faith by coming while the problem is still big in their lives and not yet resolved. Another point, I'll try and be quick. Faith is a spiritual battleground. The Bible, and the New Testament particularly, tells us on a number of occasions that the righteous will live by faith. That's said many times. Now, Satan knows that, and so he knows what to attack in Christians. He attacks our faith. If he can rob us of faith, he's got us completely undone, really. And he knows, the enemy, that is, that fear neutralizes faith, And that if he can get us putting faith in lies or believing lies, that also neutralizes faith in God. So they are two huge weapons in Satan's armory to get us moving out of fear and not faith in God and to get us believing something that's untrue and putting our faith, if you like, in the wrong thing. When he's got us on that ground, we are pretty well his playthings. So he is an expert at using those two weapons of fear and lies. And the only real answer is to draw near to God, to press in despite the circumstances, as we'll see in a moment in these two dear people, to push through all the logical barriers and to hang on to Jesus, but also to hear his word and believe it instead of believing things that are untrue. And that's how we press through. There is it seems, and this is I find quite challenging, so I join you in being challenged. There is, it seems, a major part on our side of the coin, the human side, a major part that faith plays in our experience of God and even in our experience of breakthroughs in all sorts of areas, including healing and provision and all sorts of things. Now, I'm not sure I fully understand it, but in experience, I would say it is true. Jesus is explicit, I've said it before, I'm going to repeat it, explicit in commending faith. And in this particular case, he says to this woman, verse 34, your faith has healed you. That is something that, like, we almost couldn't say. We think, can he say that? That's what he says. Daughter, your faith. Now we know Jesus has healed her. We know the power has gone out of him. We've been told that. So something, it's not her manipulation of her brain, it's not her willpower, it's not positive thinking. There has been a, a spiritual encounter when the power of God has healed her. She's not been healed by a psychological trick, right? But having said all that, Jesus says, Your faith has healed you. Now, what Jesus means is, from your point of view, girl, your faith is what's brought the breakthrough. Now, it wouldn't have been any good for her going to a normal rabbi and touching his clothes, but as long as he's got faith in stuff, she's got faith in touching cloaks 
I've got faith in touching cloaks. That would be nonsense. It's Jesus. And that's where the power is. That's where the hope is. But she exercised faith. And Jesus commends her for it. Now, there are sovereign acts of healing in the Gospels. We can think of a few quickly. You could think of the widow of Nain or even Peter's mother-in-law, which is early here, where people who don't seem to even be looking and don't be exercising faith, and they're healed. So there's clearly a a lesson that uh, healings can be sovereign acts of compassion by Jesus. But most of the healings, there is some evidence of faith. People come to Jesus, people ask him, people do what he asks them to do, whatever, whatever. And on the negative side, there is this challenge from the very next chapter. Let's put up, uh, I've got ahead of myself, I'm going to be spoiling the plan in a minute. No mind, let's put it up. No, I haven't, I haven't got ahead of myself, forget it. That, ignore that interlude. Mark 6. This is, I think this is really challenging. Look at this and be challenged. <laughs> he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. <gasps> this is the only place in the Gospels we're told Jesus was limited in what he could do. And he couldn't do much healing and miracles. And the factor, brothers and sisters, appears to be their lack of faith. It does not appear to be, and I tread on careful ground here, it was God's will that he didn't want to heal many people in Nazareth. That is not the biblical reason given in our inspired Bibles for that. Now you can have your system, I have my system, try to fit everything together, how do all the verses of the Bible work out, it's great fun, but the reality is... On the ground, in the nitty-gritty of life, that's what the Bible tells us about the situation. That Jesus, who's saying to this dear woman, whoa, your faith has been so important, lady, is now, daughter, uh, is now saying, it's a shame, I couldn't do much there. Their lack of faith, I'm amazed at their lack of faith. So it's a huge huge issue. Let's quickly go to the two examples, these two people, and see what we can learn from them. They're two ordinary people. Uh, as I said, Jairus, you could say sort of middle class, ordinary if you like. The lady by now is, is a bit of an outcast and probably quite poor, impoverished by all that's happened to her. And yet you can learn some things from them. Here's the first one. Faith is belief in who Jesus is and what he can do. <laughs> that's simple, isn't it? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he can do what the Bible promises he can do? That's so important. That's fundamental to our faith. Both of these people, Jairus and the woman, demonstrate that. They come to him as a man who can bring an answer to their need. And to do it, they both defy convention, press through barriers. And here is a telling contrast to Nazareth, which comes in the next chapter. Can you put up this? It's a little bit long, but it's a few more verses before the ones we read a moment ago. Jesus left there, this is after the, it's immediately after the incident we've read, went to his hometown, notice, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? 
and they took offense at him. And then it goes on to say, what I've already read, he could not do many, any miracles there except lay hands on a few people, blah, blah, blah. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, whoa, so they're not doing what Jairus and the woman do. They're the other way around. They cannot see beyond their human judgment of Jesus. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is the carpenter from their town. He's Joseph and Mary's son. He's got his brothers and sisters here. Look, we know them. Yeah, we have cups of coffee with them. You know, our kids go to the same school. This is the carpenter. What are we talking about? Amazing miracle, son of God. He's just the carpenter. Now, here's the challenge for us. Do you really believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you allow the devil's lies, and there are plenty of them around today, to undermine that you think, well, Jesus was a wonderful teacher, wonderful man, can't really be God and man, can he? Yes, that's what it says, that's what he was. Can't really have risen from the dead, can he? Yes, that's what it says, that's what he did. He is alive today at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you can only get as far as what you can mentally grasp and your judgment, oh, I've looked at the church, pretty awful. I don't like the church. I went to that church, they were horrible. That church, they were horrible. So Jesus must be a bit feeble. I don't, it's your problem. If you want to get something out of God, you've got to get beyond that. I'm just telling you how it is. I'm not making any excuse for the church, but if you want to locked in saying, oh, this and that and that and the other, I'm not sure it works, I'm not sure, you are going to stay impoverished and without the benefits of knowing Jesus. You've got to accept him as who he said he was. Don't be like Nazareth. They lost it, missed it completely. It seems like it's the only place that suffered like that and didn't get many miracles or healings or anything. Okay, let's be quick. Faith comes out in these words of these people. They speak something. They don't speak a mantra, but they speak, please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live, says Jairus. The woman probably says to herself, if I can only just touch the hem of his garment. There's, a, there's a, an important thing here. They believe something about Jesus and they express it some way. They, they say it. They say, look, I believe Jesus is who he says. He, I believe he's the answer. And they, they put it into words. And for Jairus, there is a battle to keep focused on his own faith attitude. Because in verses 35 and 36, we're told that a group come from his home and say his daughter has died. And they say this, your daughter is dead, why bother the teacher anymore? Now that's very reasonable actually, that's very logical, it's very human but Jesus says, ignore that, don't be afraid, only believe. Now, he doesn't say ignore that. My translation says, ignoring what they said. Jesus gives Jairus an example. You said the right thing, Jairus, at the beginning. I can come to your house and heal your daughter. Don't get distracted. That's very logical. It's very polite and courteous. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Defeatist. Don't do it. Don't give in. Don't be afraid. Keep believing. That's interesting, isn't it? There's a sort of battle of words here. There's a battle between the words that Jairus genuinely speaks. Jesus came to my house, he'd be the answer. And words, well-intentioned, not even bad, really, that come in negatively and say, you know, it's over, really. Forget it. You can't forget Jesus about this. And Jesus, it says, ignored them. And he sort of, it says to Jairus, ignore them. <laughs> 
Don't, take, don't get focused. Just keep your faith. Don't be afraid. Don't give in to fear. I think it's very important. Faith comes out in their actions, our actions. Jairus, obviously, we've seen already, won't spend long on it, came, pushed through, humbled himself, pushed through social convention, bowed at Jesus' knees. He really meant it. He wasn't, if you've got faith, you're not held back by embarrassment. Embarrassing things happened to Jairus, more than one. There's three, pretty well. There's the first one when he comes. There's the one we've just looked at when his friends come and say, don't bother him anymore. And he's sort of like, and Jesus said, no, 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 don't take a notice of that. Just keep believing. And then when they get to the house and there's all the mourning going on, all the commotion, and they would have probably been professional mourners. And then when Jesus makes this statement about, no, she's not dead, she's asleep, mysterious in a way, provoking, they laugh. So they're not actually that upset. They're probably professional mourners. And they're just cynical. They've seen many a death. They know what a dead body looks like. They've seen them. They do it for a job. And they just laugh at Jesus. Now, for Jairus, he's, he's got to come through that because Jesus says, put them out or puts them out. And then he takes the parents into the little girl's room. Jairus, his emotions must have been in turmoil. But somehow he hangs on to the fact that Jesus is the answer. If I can get Jesus to my little girl, and and Jesus helps him. (laughs) But to, to do that, he has to get over several things, quite courteous negative statements from his friends. And then this mockery, sheer mockery really, of these cynical professional mourners. What are you talking about? She's dead. It's obvious. And, and, and he somehow has to keep holding on to Jesus. His words and his actions keep pressing through. He's not a giant of the faith. These two people are not a thousand miles from you and me. That's what I want you to get. They're not, we're not talking about Joshua or David, although they were very human. We're talking about two ordinary people. We're talking about people who are emotionally disturbed by what's happened to them. And they just have to hold on to Jesus despite pressures the other way. Both of them have to do that. And their actions prove their faith. Faith is seen in their obedience to Jesus. That's probably what I'm already talking about. Jairus doesn't argue with Jesus about, you know, well, hang on, they've told me that she's dead, so they're probably right, aren't they? He doesn't do that. And, and, and the woman comes forward and tells her story, which she expects to bring huge problems on her because she's broken the law. They both obey Jesus. And you'll see other people obeying Jesus, often in mysterious ways, things that he asks them, questions they answer. There are delays he makes which they have to tolerate. He gives them things to do, go and wash in a pool or wash mud off. And and they tend to do it, if they're in faith, they do it apparently uncomplaining. I bet they didn't understand why they were doing it, but they don't argue with him. And I tell you what, that's tough. Faith has to hold on. Faith is not mamby-pamby. Faith is not wimpy. I mean, even here, it sounds simple. Don't be afraid, just keep believing. Because the verb is keep believing. Don't be afraid, keep believing. That sounds simple. It's not that simple if someone's come who you respect and know and said, look, the girl's dead, forget it. So it's actually a huge battle. It's a fundamental challenge. If he's only going to look at the circumstances, he's done for. His faith's going to cave in. 
And um, this man is not a giant. I want to keep saying that because we get these silly ideas. We all do it. That faith means it's like a tough... It's because we get it from the world, which really sees it all as psychological, positive thinking. It's someone who can grit their teeth and, you know, winner, a winner, a winner. No, no, Jairus is not like that. He just hangs on to Jesus. And when Jesus says, don't give in, don't be frightened, don't get into fear, he sort of stays with him, right? The woman's the same. She comes out trembling. She, I've just got to be honest, it was me. And then here's these wonderful words. They're not giants. They're not like really psyched up. There's nothing of that around it. But they don't allow the circumstances to completely wash away their faith. True faith is self-risking trust in Jesus himself. I think I got that from someone. But that's what it is. Don't know where. (laughs) True faith is self-risking trust in Jesus himself. That is what it is. It's not just faith in words, it's faith in Jesus and what he can do. So we're finished there. What's our response going to be to this this morning? And I've thought about this quite a bit, actually, because I don't, I've said it once, I want to repeat myself, I don't want to leave you thinking like, right, okay, this is a mountain I've got to climb, I don't know how I get there. I think that your faith in Jesus can be as simple as this woman's touch. It can be as fragile as Jairus' must have been on the edge all the time with all the bad news he was getting. But they both somehow pressed through to Jesus and held on to him. Amen? Amen. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I think we need to remind ourselves of a few things. I'm not going to Linger. Now, I'm, I'm not going to miss the next two verses out. It's too uh, lengthy. I want to get to the very last screen, please, that I had. Thank you. Matthew 18. Thank you. I want to put this verse up, and I want us to use it as a vehicle of faith as we finish. Truly, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, in a room like this, there will be many, many needs. And I believe that God wants to meet some this morning. I believe he wants to stir us in our faith battles. If you are never, have never yet become a Christian, never yet asked Jesus into your life, I challenge you, do it this morning. This morning in a minute, I want to give you an opportunity to come forward and say, I want to pray with someone to ask Jesus to be my saviour and my Lord, to take away my uncleanness and give me his cleanness and purity, to bring wholeness to me, mind, body and spirit. I, I, I believe he will meet you. But I, I also think there are people who need healing. There are people here who have backslidden children that you are desperate, like Jairus, you're desperate, it's spiritual death, not physical death, but you're desperate for them to come alive again by the spirit, to be re-saved or whatever you feel. You don't know whether they were saved or not, but rekindled into their spiritual life. I believe there'll be people with an unsaved relative, maybe a very close relative, a husband or a wife. There'll be financial needs. And all of these we need to be prepared to bring to Jesus. Let's stand together for a moment. I'm not sure we'll do it with music. Yes, we will. (laughs) It might be helpful if you could have the band up. Thank you.
What we are going to do, if we could leave that verse up for the moment, this is how we're going to do things this morning. I've deliberately stirred your faith. I want to quicken you to be men and women of faith and walk by faith. But I also want us to experiment a bit or experience a bit today. And I, I want you, if you have a need, like I've cited, you want to become a Christian, a healing, backslidden child, unsaved relative, financial need, breakthrough in any area, I want you to be prepared to come forward and I, we've got a team of people who will pray with you. Now, I'm using the words carefully. Pray with you, but you need to engage in prayer with them. This is not so passive as we might sometimes do, where you just stand there and someone just prays over you. I want you and they, it may be one or two persons, I'd like, say, a man to be with a man or a woman with a woman, or otherwise a couple with a member of the opposite sex. And I want you to follow this verse in faith which is from the Bible, agree together about this thing. We're going to bring to Jesus your child, your sickness, your 12 years of illness. It might have been 12 years. Your your spiritually dead child, your need. It need not be that. It could be a financial need. It could be something else. And we're going to pray, Jesus, meet this need. Heal this person. Bring back this child. Make them alive again. Amen? Amen. So as the music plays, and I think it'll just be you playing to us by and large, if that's all right. I'd like to leave the verse up, you see, that verse. (laughs) As the music plays, I want you to come forward. We've got a prayer team here. We we have other members of the church who I'd like to pray as well. If, If you're available, people, you know who you are, people who pray with people, small group leaders. I want you to come forward. We're short of time as ever.